time for re-engineering your finances with the founder of CP Weldy Group, Charles Weldy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Reengineering Your Finances. I'm Walter Sorholt alongside Charles Weldy, founder and certified financial planner at CP Weldy Group, serving you in the Delaware and Chester County areas with an office in Chad's Ford, PA. They're on Route 52. We're online at cpweldygroup.com. And on today's show, we're going to be picking some sides in very important financial debates and asking Charles if he concurs. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. Charles, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Walter. How about yourself? Doing great. Looking forward to our chat today. Uh, Charles told me before the show, show folks, he was just uh, playing all-star round of golf recently, but uh, picked up a small injury there, Charles. So you're, you're sidelined for maybe a week? Yeah, probably a week or two. Um, you know, I had a lot of fun, but you know, I guess as you get older, you got to watch the back. So I got a little minor back pain and I'm going to call, you know, put it on hold for a couple of weeks and come back hopefully stronger than ever. What are we treating it with? Are we, are we heat or ice or the heat ice? Uh, a little bit of both. Yeah. Combo. Of, yeah. A little bit of both heating pad and uh, ice and, you know, net, you know, just alternating. So it's, uh, you know, and, and I think really water. I've had minor back issues prior to this, but I think it's from sitting on my rear end for the last 30 years. Nobody told me, you know, I thought I was doing a good job working, but sitting all day really like takes its toll as you get older. So oh, goodness. Yes. For those, is, for those on the true. call that are listening, you know, get up every hour and walk around. Walk know? around. Yeah, that's a great, absolutely great point. I notice a yeah. huge difference in days when I'm kind of, you know, stuck at the microphone all day long and, you know, eight hours later, you're just stiff and it's really hard to go work out and, and get active versus like a weekend when you might be active all day long. Yeah, you're going to be a little more tired at the end of the day, but boy, you feel more limber and uh, more energetic even after being active all day. So there's something to that, Charles. We're going to take yeah, that to absolutely. heart today. And uh, that's get my up, first step. <laughs> I'm going to get up in between each, uh, each show today and uh, <laughs> do a little stretching. Uh, all right, well, let's have some fun here, Charles. We've got five debates that we're going to discuss on today's show. And we're going to pick sides on these different uh, financial debates and uh, see what side of the debate you fall on, Charles. And I would love to hear the why behind some of these things, of course. And uh, I think we're going to learn a lot from today's show. So uh, debate number one, nobody needs life insurance once they've retired. I've heard some people share that strong opinion before. Where do you fall in that debate? Do you concur? Well, I mean, when you say nobody, obviously, you know, it, it doesn't work for me. I mean, obviously, life insurance does have its benefits. And, you know, when I look at even retirees, people in their you know 60s uh, and later in life, you know, basically life insurance, uh, there's really three reasons to get life insurance when you're older. Number one would be wealth transfer. So think about it. Uh, your parent passes away. They got a million dollar IRA or they have a billion dollar life insurance policy. Which one would you want to inherit, Walter? Oh, uh, yeah, that the that's uh, the life insurance policy, right? Yeah, obviously, because, you know, it's tax-free. So yeah. people really, like, you know, don't really give full appreciation to a tax-free, you know, asset. And life insurance, you know, for wealth transfer is really a big deal. We're working on a case now. It hasn't, like, come to fruition, but um, we have a, a married couple. He's about 85. She's, like, 81. Um, and they're actually putting a million dollar premium into a life insurance policy, and they're only going to have a $1.3 million death benefit. So what I mean by that, Walter, is that the insurance company is only at risk for 300 grand because if they pass away, uh, for the most part, you know, a million dollars is their money and 300,000 is the insurance company's money. 
But the key is that by doing that, they'll get a million dollars out of their estate. And this couple happens to be in the, you know, the state, uh, federal state tax rate of you know, 40%. So just by moving a million dollars from their left pocket to their right pocket, they could save $400,000 in future income taxes. Well, I know so you're, the, you're the master of saving money and uh, tax-efficient retirement planning, Charles. So that one's right up your alley, isn't it? Yeah. So wealth transfer definitely, you know, is one of the, the keys, you know, why I would say, hey, when you're older, still look at life insurance. It might be viable. But a second option would be long-term care. I just recently read that over 90% or, or nearly 90% of the people that could use long-term care don't have a long-term care policy. And really, like everybody wants it, but nobody wants to pay for it. Well, they have these life insurance policies today that, for the most part, you can add a, add a rider to them. So I'll give you an example. Uh, somebody puts in 30000 a year for five years, 150000 of their own money. And basically, for that, they might be able to get a $300,000 death benefit. Well, obviously, at some point, they're probably going to pass away. So somebody's going to get three hundred grand. However, if they add a long-term care rider to that policy, they're entitled to take out 2% of their death benefit. 2% of 300000 is 6000 a month for up to four years to subsidize their long-term care benefit. So again, you know, uh, it's something that if people were more aware of, they might look at the money that they've accumulated and put it in different, what I call buckets, so to speak, to leverage a long-term care benefit via life insurance. So that's a second benefit of, of uh, life insurance when you're a retiree. And the last one, um, there's a little skepticism about it because most people, and, and I'm thinking of a, a person by the name of Dave Ramsey, I, I think he says a lot that life insurance is not an investment. But, you know, I beg to differ. Um, I would say this, that, you know, we have a lot of clients doing Roth IRA conversions to get tax-free income in retirement. Well, you can lose a, use a life insurance policy if it's funded properly. And that's the key. You know, you want to maybe fund it over five to seven years, get as much money into that policy as possible and get the least amount of death benefits so that your insurance charges are minute or really not that significant. And, you know, if it's structured properly, that policy could possibly grow at, let's just say, 5% tax-free per year. And eventually, if you let it marinate for maybe 10, 12, 15 years tops, you'll be able to take money out tax-free for the rest of your life, which could be something comparable to a Roth IRA. But the big benefit with these life insurance policies is that, you know, you can never really uh, lose money in the market. You know, a lot of these policies are indexed to the market, which means that, hey, maybe you can make today as high as 9%. You know, if the market does 20, you're capped at 9 but if the market loses money, you just didn't get any interest that year. So it, again, it's not for everyone, but it's something that people who have, you know, a decent amount of money and it's all in IRAs or Roth IRAs, they should consider maybe like, you know, looking at their game plan. Hey, what am I going to give to my family? Is life insurance a, a better gift than, you know, them inheriting an IRA? And if I have a, an IRA or Roth IRA, you know, do I need that much in the Roth IRA, which can make 30 and lose 30? Or can I put a portion of that Roth IRA, you know, into a life insurance policy? Again, you would do this before you got the Roth IRA, but you're putting the money that you normally would allocate to a Roth IRA, to a life insurance policy to give you a second source of tax-free income. So I know I said a mouthful, but, you know, by and large, I totally disagree that, 
you know, uh, nobody leads life insurance once they're retired. It definitely is a tool. And again, it has to be like understood and used properly. And in today's, you know, life insurance environment, the problem that I see is that, you know, once people purchase a life insurance policy, no one seems to be able to manage it or give them advice on how to like enhance it. Uh, people just buy it, put it in a drawer and forget about it. And I think, uh, you know, with some of the policies today, that's really not a good, you know, um, road to follow. They should uh, buy a policy, use it as an asset and actually like manage that year in, year out. Good points across the board, Charles. I know you don't like absolutes, uh, but this one you you broke down really well for us. So there you go. Nobody needs life insurance once they've retired. Eh, Charles definitely does not concur on that side of that debate. Uh, here's another debate for you. It's better to have a fee-based advisor instead of a commission-based broker. What say you on that one, Charles? Well, you know, I, let's define fee-based. Fee-based uh, to me is like, hey, you know, you mainly get your income via fees, you know, from the client. However, you know, uh, fee-based is not fee-only. So fee-based advisors can also accept commissions, and most fee-based advisors do. But when I when you, I hear the term fee-based, I really think of relationship. So anyone that's paying an advisor a fee, an ongoing fee, uh, really like wants a relationship, uh, an ongoing relationship. Anyone that, you know, just solely is commission-based, uh, I, I view that as transactional. Uh, maybe you really don't need an advisor, you know, you just need a certain product or, or service one time. Um, I'm not like anti-commission. I'm not, you know, pro-fee-based. I really think that uh, it's up to the client to decide. So uh, for the most part, you know, here in our firm, we do plans for a fee, you know, so it's a flat fee and that's phase one. Phase two would be, hey, you know, we just gave you these recommendations. You want to implement them. And if they do, uh, want to implement them. There might, some of the recommendations might be commission based. Some might be fee based. They're usually a combination of both. So, um, you know, it's better to have a fee based instead of a commission based broker. I kind of disagree. You know, I would say it really depends on what, do you want to establish a relationship, an ongoing relationship, or is it one and done? One and done, commission based, I guess is all right. But if you're really like, you know, want to establish, a, you know, uh, someone to provide you guidance over your retirement, uh, then I think fee-based might be more appropriate. It's another good one. Fee-based advisor uh, versus the commission-based broker discussion. Definitely a good debate to have. All right, two down. Another one here for you, Charles. Annuities are a ripoff. Nice and simple opinion on that one. Uh, how about that financial debate? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I'm sure most People that are listening to this podcast have seen in the Wall Street Journal a full-page uh, ad from uh, Fisher Investments that says, I hate annuities and you should too. And again, like, you know, I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I, I think uh, most people look at annuities and they look, they're kind of complex. They're not a ripoff. They could be an opportunity if you really understood what they were. So what I like to kind of like uh, summarize, you know, about annuities is like, hey, there's four different types. There's immediate annuities, there's fixed annuities, there's fixed index annuities, and there's variable annuities. And they all have different, you know, uh, pluses and minuses. But by and large, an immediate annuity is something like, hey, I have $100,000. I'm going to give it to an insurance company for the promise of a monthly check. At least with immediate annuity, you know you're never going to run out of money. You're going to run out of air before you run out of money. And maybe the good thing about immediate annuities is, 
for the most part, you know, you know that um, depending upon your age, you know what payment you're going to get each and every month. So obviously, the older you are, the higher the payment's going to be, and the and the younger you are, the lower the payment's going to be. So immediate annuities, they have a place in someone's portfolio if. One of their main concerns is running out of money. You might just buffer some of their fixed costs with immediate annuity to provide them that steady income stream throughout their lifetime. Then we have fixed annuities. Fixed annuities in my world are like CDs. However, a CD is insured by the FDIC, federal government, federal, you know, whatever that FDIC stands for. I can't think about what it stands for now. But uh, for the most part, um, a, a fixed annuity is insured by the insurance company, you know, the strength of the insurance company behind the annuity. But what most people don't realize is in a lot of states, and I think here in Pennsylvania, maybe up to 300,000 of your principals protected by this like, you know, state insurance fund. So the point I want to make is fixed annuities are, are, are probably a good thing to think about because when we compare them with CDs, as a general rule, the interest is much higher. The uh, opportunity to get money from the annuity is a lot more, um, a lot less stringent, so to speak. You know, you can take a certain percentage of your uh, account balance out each and every year. And, you know, the interest that you're earning is tax deferred. So all those, you know, factors make a fixed annuity something that, you know, might not be a ripoff. It could be an opportunity. Thirdly, the fixed index annuity, it's just like a fixed annuity. However, the interest is not fixed. It's really, you know, depends on what index. And for this example, I'll just use the S&P 500. So today you might be able to go out into the market and get a, a, maybe a seven year fixed index annuity that has a cap, let's just say of 5%, which means that, hey, if the market did 10, you get five because you're capped at five. If the market did two, you get two because it's under the cap. If the market lost 10, you wouldn't lose anything. So again, you know, I'm not here to say fixed index annuities are great. I'm here to say that, hey, that might be something someone might look at in lieu of a bond fund. Bond funds have expenses. They have interest rate risk. And here with the fixed index annuity, you could have interest that's really pegged to the stock market and you're participating in the goodness of the stock market when it goes up. And when the market goes down, you're automatically out of it. So it's something that could be an opportunity for certain people if they understood how they work. And then lastly, the variable annuity. And here's what I think, you know, the Fisher investment people are talking about when they put that big ad in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I hate annuities and you should too. And I have to admit, I have somewhat of a bias with variable annuities. Most of them have like high cost. I mean, the cost for, uh, I would say the average variable annuity would be around 3%. So think about it this way, Walter. If the market's going to give you six or seven, you know, and you're paying three for this quote insurance, I mean, your net return's only four. And again, I'm not saying four is good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying that um, sometimes, you know, um, people purchase these variable annuities and they don't realize that, you know what, there's an internal fee of somewhere around 3% a year. And when you do the math, if somebody had a couple hundred thousand dollars in a variable annuity, again, there's benefits. So I'm not discounting that. But 3% of $200,000, $6,000 a year in fees and I'm not so sure that that insurance cost is really worth it for most people. I think there might be other alternatives. But again, if I have a client that is deathly afraid of the stock market, and I know in my heart that, you know what, there's no way this client's going to reach their goals unless they have their money invested in the stock market. 
than a variable annuity, despite its cost. And again, there are some companies out there with low costs, but in spite you know, the overall average cost of 3%, it might be something worth looking at for you know, an investor. So just to sum it up, annuities, I don't think are a ripoff. I think they're a great opportunity if they're used properly in an investment plan and, and the client understands the advantages and the disadvantages. Because in a lot of cases, the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages. You're on fire today, Charles. Good breakdowns across the board. Let me give a uh, quick opportunity for folks. If you've got questions about something that Charles has talked about so far today, you can easily reach out by calling 610-388-7705. Or if there's a particular financial matter that we don't cover on today's show that you'd like to know Charles's opinion on and get his perspective and advice on those matters, again, feel free to reach out 610-388-7705 or online at cpweldygroup.com. And we'll put the contact info in the description of today's show to make it easy for you to find that. We're talking about these different financial debates, and I've got another one for you, Charles. Uh, We've got three down, two more to go. Uh, You'll be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, so it's best to defer taxes now and pay them later. What do you think about that debate? Yeah, so we were always taught, like, um, you know, you'll definitely be in a lower bracket when you retire. But what's happening today is, like, most people, you know, during their uh, working career have put, you know, the bulk of their savings into tax-deferred investments. And, you know, tax-deferred investments include IRAs, 401ks. And today, you know, once you hit age 72, and no matter how old you are on this call, believe me, time flies. So at some point, you're going to be 72 years old. And regardless of whether you need to take money out or not, you're going to be required to take it out when you're 72 years old. So what's happening is, as a general rule, um, what you have to take out is basically around 4% of the account balance. So, you know, you have people today, husband and wife working, they're you know, funding their 401ks to the max, you know, maybe 25000 plus a year for each person. Uh, what keeps me up at night, Walter, is not what they're doing now. It's like what that's going to be worth when they're age 72. And, um, you know, let's just take a, I'll just pull a number off a bus, a $3 million, you know, IRA, husband and wife, uh, 4% of 3 million is 120 grand. Add that to two social security checks. Maybe you're up to like 160. You're in a very high tax bracket. And again, like, you know, you can use 2 million instead of 3 million. But the point I want to make is with the government spending what they're spending and a lot of people coming off the, you know, payrolls onto the retirement rolls and the strain we have on Social Security and Medicare, to me, it's inevitable that tax rates are going to go up. So um, I'm not so sure that, you know, you'll be in a lower tax bracket at retirement. I think what people need to do is they need to look at the tax brackets and there's actually three, four, five, six, seven of them. It starts at 10 and it ends at 37. And the point I want to make is that most people don't realize this, but they can have, if you're a married you know, couple, you could have, I'm looking at a chart here, 81 plus 28, let's just call it uh, 80 plus 30, $120,000 of income and they could still be in like the 12% tax bracket, right? And, and what's amazing is, um, you know, they won't be in the 12% tax bracket. If they have large IRAs, 401ks. The next bump is 22%. That's a tremendous increase. So the point I want to make is as a planner, uh, I know myself, I have a strong tax background and that's why I love what I do. I integrate tax planning with financial planning. What I try to do, if you can visualize this, is I try to keep all my clients taxable income 
below like 120,000. That way they're in, you know, a 12% or lower tax bracket. And then anything above that, you know, is in tax free investments like Roth IRAs or cash value life insurance and maybe tax free municipal bonds. So, yeah, long winded answer to that basic question, like you'll be in a lower tax bracket in retirement. I doubt it because, um, you know, the reality of it is, is, you know, again, the government is, uh, you know, just printing money like crazy. Inflation's like rearing its ugly head. Most people have saved their retirement dollars in pre-tax accounts. And it's inevitable that that's a low hanging fruit that the IRS is going after, um, you know, sooner rather than later. Well, it's just another one of those things that, you know, hey, here's the old uh, assumed way of doing things that just isn't the case anymore. And so I think it's great that we are able to still point these things out. Uh, Last one, we'll end on a Social Security element here, Charles. You should start your Social Security as early as possible to ensure that you get your money out of the system. Uh, What do you think about that debate? Well, I mean, you know, to get your money out of the system, I think the money's going to be there regardless. I think anyone on this podcast that's 55 or older, I believe that the existing Social Security system is going to remain the same. What they may do is they may increase the uh, early retirement age from 62 to maybe 64, 65, and maybe the, um, I guess, what they call it, the full retirement age from 67 to 69, 70. Uh, and every year, Walter, they increase the amount subject to Social Security tax on your payroll. So the point I want to make is the money's there. Um, it just yeah, and, and even when there's a shortage in the future, there's ways to actually make that up. So uh, if somebody says, hey, they're going to run out of money in the Social Security system, that's not a good reason to take your Social Security at age 62. There might be other reasons. You might not be in really good health, right? You might not have to work anymore because a lot of people who take uh, their social security benefit at age 62 that continue to work, sometimes they run into a, a problem where, hey, if you make over a certain amount, like fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000, you need to get some of your social security benefit back. So uh, it's all not you know a one and done answer. Take it sooner rather than later, get your money out of the system. And then again, like, you know, maybe your taxable income uh, at that uh, at that level at 62 with other income, if you're married, uh, could cause like maybe one or two years social security checks to go back to the government because you're paying taxes on that benefit. But again, like it, there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, I got uh, four brothers, you know, one of them's taken his at an early age, you know, maybe three of us are delaying till, you know, uh, age 70. It really depends on a lot of factors. But I will mention this one case I heard about several years ago, and it really is intriguing. There was a really wealthy individual it was really successful, continued to work. And at age 62, he decided to take his social security. And you would wonder like, wow, this guy's making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, 85% of his benefits are going to be taxable at probably like 25%. Why is this guy doing this? And then I heard, you know, um, that I don't know the name of the client, but I know the story. The guy was putting his monthly social security benefit into a life insurance policy at age 62. And he did it for 10 years till he was 72. And for the most part, the benefit that he got from the life insurance policy far outweighed any any alternative investment he could ever make. And also, um, you know, he had a big pile of like, you know, money that he could utilize for his family and for himself at, at age 72 because he had the insight to fund a life insurance policy with this, quote, free money for 10 years that he didn't need. Uh, I thought that was an interesting case. I haven't run into anything like that in my career. 
But again, for all the people on the podcast, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, obviously, um, you know, if you're married and maybe your spouse didn't work as much, you might have to really consider delaying to make sure that, you know, that benefit is there for your spouse. So there's a lot of factors. I mean, I heard there's over 500 ways to take your Social Security. I think some of that, you know, in a nice way might be BS, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, tell I, us, I can't tell ima- us the yeah. truth, Charles. I yeah, like I that. Mean, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the reality, yeah, the reality of it is, is like, you know, hey, what's your tax bracket? What's your income need? Do you have other assets that you can spend down? And for the most part, you know, my general consult to most people is like, hey, if you have other assets, you know, why don't you spend them down? I know it's counterintuitive because if I'm helping you manage your assets, there's less to manage, but I don't care about, you know, fees or whatever. I care about you making the right decision. There's no other, you know, investment that I can find for you that's going to compound at say 8% a year, you know, for four years after you reach your full retirement age. So if you can possibly delay it, and you feel like you're going to live well beyond age 80, which I define as 84 or more, then you might be better served by delaying your Social Security benefit. But again, that's what's great about financial planning. There's no right or wrong answer. And I try to listen to all sides and just make an informed decision based upon what the client's needs are. Great points there, Charles, as well. Thank you for the thorough breakdown on the show today. Lots of different financial debates out there. We only covered five of them on the show, but some great reasonings behind uh, why Charles plans the way that he does. And if you have questions about that, again, reach out to him. Talk about coming in for a review of your financial plan or any questions that you have on the financial side of things. 610-388-7705 is the number to call. Again, that's 610-388-7705. Remember, Charles specializes in creating tax-efficient retirement plans and uh, helps you with that full scope of financial and retirement planning. So if you haven't put together one of those full plans or need a second opinion of your current plan, reach out if you have any questions. We'll put contact info in the description of today's show as well. And again, you can also go online to cpweldygroup.com for more. Charles, thanks for the help today, and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Walter. All right, we appreciate it. Uh, That's Charles Weldy here on Re-Engineering Your Finances. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode. Financial planning and advisory services are offered through Prosperity Capital Advisors, PCA, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Registration as an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The CP Weldy Group and PCA are separate, non-affiliated entities. PCA does not provide tax or legal advice.